Okay, so the internet made me laugh harder this week than I think I've laughed in a really, really long time, okay? I often find funny things online that just crack me up, but this one I thought was like next level genius. So the story goes that this teenager in England decided to go to McDonald's, and you know how at McDonald's they've used those, they've started using those touchscreen kiosks where you can just do your order there so we don't have to deal with anybody face-to-face because we don't even like that sort of thing anymore. Robots are taking over, and so... Uh, yeah, so this teenager went to McDonald's, started using the touchscreen thing to order a cheeseburger. And what he noticed was that you could, you know, individually select the components of the burger that you did not want. In the same way that you might order something and say, hey, cut the pickles. I don't like pickles. Nobody likes pickles, that sort of thing. He, he went, so, okay, apparently some of you do like pickles, not me. Um, and so anyway, the, the teenager was like, I wonder if I could get rid of everything on the burger. And so using the touchscreen, we'll put the picture up here on the screen for you. Using the touchscreen, he went through and he said, okay, no bun, no meat, no cheese, no ketchup, no onions, no pickle, and then submitted the order. Now, here's what made this next level amazing. McDonald's charged this kid 99 cents for a bag of nothing. He walked up to the counter and the, the guy was looking through, and he's like, order 267. How do we even process this? I don't know what we do. And so they took the receipt. They stapled it to an empty bag after they collected his 99 cents, and they gave him a nothing burger. That's a real thing. No calories. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's paying 99 cents for the bag. I don't know how they managed to make that happen, but they did. And of course, he posted it on Twitter, and then it went viral, and it was tweeted like tens of thousands of times, so much so that he eventually had to make his Twitter account private because of all the craziness that went along with it. And I died laughing. I just thought it was so funny. It's one of those things that like you would never expect. It's so silly. It's so trivial, but it is really, really funny. As I was thinking about that, though, it occurred to me that this actually has a lot of parallels to the series that we've been talking about, this afterlife series, where we're asking the question, what happens when you die? And the parallel I see is that a lot of people, and man, we've, we've kind of honed in on this idea over the last three weeks or so, a lot of people treat the afterlife as if it were a fast food burger, as if they were the ones who should be able to decide what's included in heaven and what's left out in the afterlife ultimately, you know? We wouldn't use these words, but we might actually think to ourselves, hey, God, I'm going to take, yeah, give me a number one. Let me have a, a big afterlife meal. That would be great. But you know what? I would like extra Streets of gold, go ahead and, and add in double the, the happiness and bliss. Hold the fire and brimstone, though, please. I don't want that in my afterlife. In fact, I don't even know why you guys offer that. Nobody likes fire and brimstone, so just cut that off the menu altogether. And we, we look at the afterlife. As if we could decide, oh, this part is good, so I'm going to take that, and that part is bad, so I'm going to write that off. Too many of us approach heaven and hell, approach the next life with that mindset. The problem is, when you look at the afterlife that way, it creates a very inconsistent view of what's going to happen. As we said over the last two weeks in particular, it actually creates some contradictions in our worldview and in the way that we live when we refuse to accept the realities 
of what the Bible has to say. And so rather than trying to pick our things a la carte and decide what we think the afterlife should be like, for the last three weeks and then including this morning, we have simply let the Bible speak on the subject. We've gone to the scripture and we've asked the question, what did Jesus have to say happens when you die? I'm not trying to convince you of anything. You can leave here doubting it, not believing it. That's totally cool. We can still be friends. I'm not worried about convincing you. What I am worried about is Jesus being heard. I am worried about allowing him to say what he wants to say. And so we've gone to a passage, Luke chapter number 16, and we've read it each and every week. We're going to read it again this morning because it's that deep, it's that powerful. And in the parts where the the scripture was encouraging and it told us great things about the afterlife that we were all so excited to hear, we let it say those things. In the places where this passage and others are confounding, they're confusing, They stress us out. They make us think, I don't know about that. We let it be in the places where it's uncomfortable. And Jesus says things that don't jive well with the culture and the world that we live in today. We haven't argued. We've said, okay, that was what Jesus had to say on the subject. And so this morning, we're going to spend one final 30 minutes or so in this passage And we're going to continue to let Jesus speak. Now, if you came this morning expecting more information about what happens after we die, because that's the name of the sermon, that's kind of what I promised you, I did pull a bit of a bait and switch this morning, okay? Because we are going to look at the same passage, and the things that we're going to talk about absolutely are going to connect with, and they're going to influence the afterlife as Jesus presented it in this passage and in others. But rather than looking at what happens when we die, this morning, we're going to look at the story of these two men in Luke 16 and what life was like for them before they died. Because here's what I'm afraid of. I've heard from so many of you guys, Dan, this has been my favorite series that we've done so far. I have loved hearing about heaven. I mean, the first week we told you guys, if you, if you remember three weeks ago, we told you guys that uh, the, the hereafter is determined in the here and now, right? Like what you do today matters and that the decisions you make for or against God, will pay, they'll pay out essentially in eternity. We told you don't buy the lie that culture gives you. It says, oh, I'm just going to wait and see what happens. You know, if I die and I stand before God, we'll just play it out and see what happens. That's a terrible strategy. You would never let your kids approach school that way, where they're like, oh, I'm just going to wait till the grades come out at the end of the year, and we'll just see how it all shakes out. No, you would never plan your retirement that way. You're like, I don't know, maybe we'll try to save something here and there, but we'll just see how it shakes out when I'm ready to retire. No, that's a terrible strategy, and it's a terrible strategy when it comes to the afterlife as well. You might remember the second week, we said to you that um, heaven is both a spiritual state and it is a physical place, and we often miss out on the physical place part. Heaven is so much better than we ever give it credit for. And then last week, we reminded you that as as far as Jesus was concerned, again, you can disagree, you can say that's silly, whatever, but as far as Jesus was concerned, hell is what happens when people who have been asking God to leave them alone their entire life finally get what they've been asking for. God leaves them alone. He withdraws even his common grace from them. And so you may be thinking to yourself, man, this has been like the best sermon series. I have loved learning about the afterlife, the future. But here's my fear. My fear is that especially those of us who are Christians, we have a tendency to become so enamored with the afterlife, to be so concerned with what happens after we die that we forget that God seems to be very enamored with this life. 
That what happens today, what happens tomorrow in your office, what happens later this week in your home is every bit as important as what heaven will be like or whether or not hell is literally fire and brimstone. That question matters as much as anything. And so we're going to spend this morning looking at the ways in which Luke 16, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, kind of remind us of our responsibilities while we have life. So let's go there. Luke chapter number 16. We're going to read this passage again. Some of you guys can quote it by memory at this point because it's the same set of verses we've read every single week. This morning, I'm actually going to read it from the New International. Every week before this, I've read from the New Living, uh, but this gives a slightly different flavor. It'll give you maybe a bit more nuance as you look at the passage. So let's start in verse number 19. The scripture says, Jesus is speaking here. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores, and he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Gross. He didn't have access to any health care or anything like that. He was in a bad state. We'll talk about that. Verse 22, the the Bible says, The time came when the beggar Lazarus died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. In hell, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Now let me pause right here for just a sec and tell you, if you were not here last week, if you didn't hear our message on hell and what's going on in all of this, please go find the podcast. It's on our website. You can find it on our church Facebook page. Go listen to that, and it will explain so much of this passage. It will help it to make a lot more sense to you. Um, So I would strongly encourage you to do that. Verse 25, uh, Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So Lazarus answered, then I beg you, Father, uh, uh, the rich man answered, I'm sorry, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. See, he says they have the Old Testament. They have the scriptures. Uh, The rich man here is kind of blame shifting. He's strongly implying that God, who's represented by Abraham in this story, uh, that God didn't give him enough information. It's your fault, God. If I would have known, like if somebody would have come back from the dead, if an angel would have showed up in my bed one night and warned me about this, then I wouldn't be here. Your fault. Can we make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else, please? And Abraham says, no, 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 no. They have Moses and the prophets. They were warned. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And uh, Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I've mentioned to you in past weeks that this story is what we call a parable. And a parable is essentially a fictional story, at least in most cases it's fictional. There's some question about whether or not this is actually a fictional story or a real story. 
But a parable is typically a fictional story that Jesus tells to illustrate a spiritual truth. We might say, and this is an easy way to remember what a parable is, it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's these stories usually about farmers or it's stories about men and women and the things that they encounter in their life. And Jesus uses that story to teach us something about God, about the kingdom of God, about ourselves, whatever it is. Now, if you want to make sense out of the parables that Jesus told, you need to read them understanding this. In nearly every parable, there's like one or two exceptions, but of the dozens of parables that Jesus told in every other one this holds true. In the parable, one character is meant to represent God. So in this passage, I've already spoiled it for you. The character that's supposed to represent God is Abraham. He was one of the ancestors, the forefathers of the Jewish nation. And so for the Jewish people, they looked at Abraham as like somebody who represented God to them. And then also one character is meant to represent you in every single parable. Now, if you're like me, okay, I'm just going to be honest here. I want to identify with Lazarus in this story. We are all like, oh yeah, I'm the underdog. I'm the little guy. I'm the one who's like, you know, I just got wronged in life. I had bad times. People took advantage of me. And in the end, I'm going to go to God and it's all going to be made right. Like we want to identify with the underdog in this story. Have you ever noticed how people will like always identify with the underdog? It's like in in every case, they want to identify with the person who like got a raw deal, the person who doesn't have all the resources and opportunity and things like that. Like, let me give you a good example. Do you know any Patriots fans like the New England Patriots? Do you know the, the football team that I'm talking about? Okay, they have won, I think the latest, the latest numbers are that they have won 19 of the last 15 Super Bowls. I'm pretty sure that's accurate, okay? And I've got some New England Patriot fans, and they will try to convince me, oh, Tom Brady's the underdog, you know? Like, despite the fact that he's won all this stuff, and, you know, he's richer than almost anybody, and he's married to a supermodel and all this stuff, he's the underdog. And I'm like, how, what? Are you serious? And they're like, yeah, you know, he's won so much, eventually he's got to lose one, right? Law of averages. And so... I want to cheer for him because he's the underdog this year. And I'm like, come on, you're kidding me. It's evidence of the fact that we always want the underdog to win. We identify with the underdog. And so when you and I read Luke chapter number 16, our immediate response is to see ourselves in Lazarus, the poor man who goes to heaven and is comforted. But I want to point out here that of the people in this story, Abraham and Lazarus have fixed identities. They have a name. They have a story. They are defined characters. There's only one person in this story who has no name. We don't know anything about him beyond the fact that he was very, very wealthy. And I think maybe part of the reason that Jesus tells this story in which two of the characters have identities and names and backstories and all of that, and one guy doesn't, is that that's a clue. It's a hint that you and I are not supposed to identify with Lazarus the beggar in this story. We're actually supposed to see ourselves in the rich man. Now, I know that's not easy, right? Nobody wants to see that. The rich man doesn't come off as a very good guy in this story. And so it's tough for us to see ourselves in him. But I have to be honest with you, when I read this and I'm candid, I'm vulnerable, I'm transparent, I see more of myself in the rich man 
than I do in Lazarus. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I mean, the first thing we learn about the rich man here in verse number 19 is that the rich man was blessed by God. In that opening verse, it says this rich man wore purple every single day. Now, that's kind of a, a reference that's lost on us, right? Like, I imagine, I don't know, like a pimp with a cane or something. Purple is just one of those things like, again, probably not a joke a pastor should make. Anyway, I, I just, like, I, for us, the reference is lost. Understand that purple is the most expensive natural dye. And so only very, very wealthy people or royalty or nobility, they're the only ones who wore purple in Jesus' day. And so it seems like an odd little detail for Jesus to include, but in reality, he's communicating something. And the Bible says this man lived in fine linen, which was like the height of fashion at, that, at, at Jesus' time, right? Um, the Bible points out that he lives in luxury every single day. This man has every one of his needs met. Anything he needs, he can have. And not only that, but most of his wants are met as well. There is very, very little that this man couldn't have if he really, really wanted it. Now, let's be honest. I know that you don't see yourself as a particularly wealthy person. You can point to lots of other people on your block, in your office, in your family. You can point to lots of other people who are far wealthier than you are. I get that. But maybe if you were here back in November, we did an entire series where we talked about the fact that even some of the poorest people in Canada are in the top 10% of wage earners around the world. And we have got to acknowledge and even embrace the opportunity that comes with the fact that we are blessed financially and materially by God. You and I really do find ourselves in the same position that this rich man does. Do you have on name brand shoes? Do you drive a car that costs multiple thousands, tens of thousands of dollars? Yes. Do you live in a home that's like half a million? Yes. Like, we cannot look at this rich man and say, oh, that's somebody else. I, I don't know who that is, but it's certainly not me. Yeah, it is you. It is you. It's me. We have been blessed by God with a lot of resources. Now, that's not a bad thing. I want you to hear this. In this story, the rich man did not go to hell because he was rich. That's so important. It's not like he was condemned because he had a lot of resources and wealth. If you read the Bible, what you see communicated throughout from the beginning to the end is that God is not opposed to wealth. And that doesn't mean everybody's going to get wealthy, and it doesn't necessarily mean that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. But the Bible is so clear that both wealth and the ability to earn wealth ultimately come from God. It is a gift that he gives to people, honestly, like you and like me. And so the rich man is not condemned. He's not struggling. He's not a bad guy because he has wealth and resources. The problem is the rich man decided he was going to use his wealth and resources and spend it only on himself. That's where he ran into trouble. That's where the rich man had difficulty. He had more than enough. And yet he chose to spend it all on himself. Like, think about what the Bible says there. The Bible says that at the gate of the rich man was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Man, of all the things that are said in here, you get tripped out. Like when Jesus talks about hell and stuff like that, I get tripped out 
when the Bible says that at his gate, day after day, year after year, decade even after decade, there was a beggar. And any time and every time the rich man had to leave his house to go on vacation or go buy his new latest toy or to go party with his friends, he walked right by this man who was in an awful, terrible, horrible situation. I mean, think about Lazarus. He had nothing. The Bible says he wanted to eat the scraps of food that the rich man threw away. Can you imagine that? You're going to go home this afternoon. If you're smart, you're going to grill yourself a big fat T-bone steak. You're going to gnaw on the bone for a while, and then you're going to throw that away, or you're going to give it to your dog. And the Bible says that Lazarus was so desperate, he wanted to eat the scraps that the rich man threw away. The Bible says he was covered in sores. They didn't have health care then. They didn't know what caused this sort of disease. And so he had no hope of getting any better. Not only that, but because of his physical condition, his sickness, he wasn't allowed to go to church. Seriously, the rule was if you were sick, you couldn't go to church because you might spread your disease. Some of you are like, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we should keep that one going. But that was the rule. And so poor Lazarus is cut off. From basic necessities like food, he's cut off from any sort of health or vitality. He's cut off from a relationship with God. And because he was spiritually and physically unclean, nobody would have spent any time with him. The Bible doesn't talk about any friends or family or anything. Lazarus is completely alone. And every day, He sits at the gate, at the end of the driveway of the rich man. And day after day after day, the rich man ignores him. The rich man uses his wealth to insulate himself from the suffering around him. If I'm honest, I do the exact same thing. If I'm really frank with you, if I'll admit that, yeah, God's given me a lot of resources, I have to also admit that I've got more than I need. And there are neighbors in Evanston, Calgary, where I live, who also live in giant homes, and yet they have needs. And often, daily even, I drive right by and never give them a second thought. It never occurs to me that maybe God has given me something that I could use to help them. That weird guy at your office who sits in the cube and you go the long way around so you don't ever have to walk past him? Honestly, it's proof that you and I are not any different than the rich man. We've been blessed and we use that blessing to help keep us away from the suffering and the brokenness that's around us. Hey, does that strike you as wrong? Like it should, on some deep fundamental level, it should strike you as wrong that anybody, whether we're Christians or not, followers of Jesus or not, doesn't even matter. It should strike us as wrong that we live our lives like the villain in this story. And I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me. Oh, but I'm also talking to you, by the way. We take the good things God gives us 
and we use them in ways that God never intended. So what does this have to do with the afterlife here? I know I promised you a sermon about what happens when you die, but what I want you to understand is that this life actually determines the afterlife. And while we're so concerned with what happens when we die, Jesus is concerned with the fact that people are dying without basic needs, without spiritual needs. They're dying right now. And we could do something about it, but we don't. We're concerned about the heaven that's to come, and Jesus wants us to create little pockets of heaven right here in Calgary. We're afraid of eternal hell, and all the while, you and I are complicit in little pockets of hell springing up in our neighborhoods every day. So let me show you what verse 25 says. Verse 25 is actually the key to understanding this entire parable. If you understand verse 25, you'll understand it all. The scripture says that Abraham replied to the rich man, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. That's what the the, the passage says. He received good things. Remember, wealth, resources, they're not bad. They're good things. The problem was the rich man took good things and he turned them into ultimate things. This was the sin. This was the problem. And this is what eventually led him away from God. The reason that he ended up in hell, separated from a relationship with God, was not because he was rich, nor was it because he spent all of his money only on himself. That even wasn't the real deal. The fact that he did that was evidence of the fact that he put his trust in his wealth, in his resources, in the good gifts that God had given him. He made good things and ultimate things. He let the gifts of God take the place of God in his life. You see, the Bible has a word for this, these misplaced priorities that you and I have. We're just like the rich man. I'm telling you guys, we have this misplaced upside down priority list in which our comfort, our wealth, our happiness, it's the number one thing that we want. And we do what the rich man does. We identify ourselves. We get our value from what we have or what people think of us or whatever the case may be. And the problem is we commit what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something or someone else other than God. And I'm guilty of it every single day. So are you. Every single day, we look to people and things to to give us our value, to show us where we fit in and who are we better than and who do we need to compete with and how do I get my self-esteem and all of that. Every day, we look to things other than God to validate us. And that was the sin. That was the attitude. That was the approach to life that cost the rich man everything. And if I'm honest, I do it every day. And so do you. We take good things, make them into ultimate things. We take the gifts of God and we let them take the place of God, who should be number one. He should be supreme. We should pursue our devotion to him above devotion to anyone or anything else. And yet we don't. So we take something like family, which really is a good gift. You should celebrate your family. My goodness, if you're lucky enough to have a spouse that you actually like, you should celebrate that. If God has given you kids, I know they drive you crazy. I know they keep you up late. I know they're expensive, all that stuff. But you should celebrate that gift. The problem is too many of us take that gift and we make it an ultimate gift. We take the good things that God gives us and we act as if they are the goal in our life. That happiness, family, kids who can grow up and support us when we retire. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to do here. No, 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 no. That's taking a good thing and making it a God thing. 
Hey, sex can be an idol. Man, like the pleasure, the intimacy, the thrill of that. There are people who devote their entire lives, or at least good chunks of their life, to pursuing that as if that was the ultimate thing, right? You know as well as I do, there are people who risk their families, they risk their careers, in some cases they even risk their freedom for the thrill of sex and pleasure. It's taking a good gift from God and turning it into God itself. We could talk about having a big house. Man, that can be an idol. Traveling all over the world, that can be an idol. Getting respect from your peers, having over 5,000 followers on Instagram. I mean, all of those things can become idols if we're not careful. I've got to be so careful every day that this church does not become an idol to me. I really do. Like, how terrible would it be if the church of God took the place of God in my heart? That'd be awful. You see, I fight the battle every day to keep God number one. You fight the battle every single day over who's going to sit on the throne of your heart. Who's going to call the shots? Who are you going to order your life around? And if it is anything but God, I promise you it will create problems, conflict, difficulty in your life because you were not meant to live this life with anything or anyone but God at the helm in that number one spot. You were created to live a life of worship with him. So to bring this back to what we've talked about over the past uh, few weeks when it comes to the afterlife, if you spend your entire life pursuing something else as your number one, as the big goal, I want this or I want that rather than God, you know what'll happen? You'll continue to try to pursue those things on into eternity. You will continue to want validation rather than God. You will continue to want to be seen as the sexy hunk. You'll continue to, be want, to, to want to be seen as the, the wealthy guy who made it, you know, the, 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 the successful entrepreneur, whatever it is. That will become your God. And that's what you will worship and pursue every single day. If hell is eternity without God, idolatry is the road that gets us there. It is the thing that we pursue rather than God that will, over a long enough trajectory, eventually lead us totally and completely away from God. So here's the thing. The scripture says, uh, we'll show the verse here, verse number 25. uh, Abraham replies to the rich man's son, in your life you received your good things while Lazarus received his bad things. Things. That, that phrase, bad, things, bad things, it's, it's a bit of a shallow translation, to be real honest with you. I love the NIV, but it's translated a bit weird. Um, the phrase in Greek, it actually means something that is, but should not be so. It basically means something that is unfair or unjust. So the the rich man is told here, look, in life you got your good things, but Lazarus was treated unfairly. There was injustice that was foisted on him. And the problem is Abraham is the one who treated Lazarus unfairly. Or not Abraham, I'm sorry, the rich man is the one who treated Lazarus so unfairly. You see, the problem is when you and I make the good gifts of God into the ultimate things that we're pursuing, we will start to use and abuse people to get what we want. The rich man used and abused the resources that he was given 
and ran roughshod over a guy that was literally at the end of his driveway who needed help. He would have taken the scraps off the rich man's table and the rich man wasn't even willing to give him that. Listen, if your family is the number one thing in your life, if like having kids and raising a happy, healthy family, if that is your ultimate goal, it's a noble goal, it's a good goal, it should be one of your goals, but it can't be the ultimate. Because if that's the ultimate thing you live for, do you realize that your children become a means to an end? They, they exist for your happiness. That's not the way you should look at them. That, those are misplaced priorities. If wealth is the number one thing that you want, if your value in life is determined by the number of zeros in your bank account, do you understand eventually you will be faced with the opportunity, the temptation to cheat so that you can get ahead. And over a long enough time with enough opportunities, you will cheat, you will lie. Some of us will even steal to get to where we want to be. If your value is determined by like your, your, your sexual desirability, like if that's the number one thing to you, then you will use people night after night after night trying to satisfy and shore up your fragile little ego. We are terrible at taking the good, beautiful, wonderful gifts of God and turning them into God ourselves. And over a long enough time, they pull us so far away from God that we would never choose to go back. Lazarus received unfair, unjust, wrong things. And I want you to understand that from the smallest little interaction to the biggest systemic injustices in our world, they all come down to the fact that you and I fail to keep God in the number one place in our lives. Because if we each establish our own gods, our own ultimate priorities, the goals that we're pursuing, eventually your goal is going to come into conflict with my goal, and then one of us is going to have to fight to win. That's why the Bible says in the book of James, man, you don't have to believe the Bible, but I'm telling you this is the truest commentary that's ever been written in our world. James chapter number four, the scripture says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. That is, you are looking for things to satisfy you in a way that only God can satisfy you. You have committed idolatry and so have I. The answer then, is to put God back in the number one place, to let him take his spot, to recognize that the answer is found in our relationship with him. In verse 25, look at the way Abraham addresses the rich man. Abraham replied, speaking to the rich man who's in hell, he's separated, he's cut off. His identity has been found in his wealth, his resources, what people think of him. And he says to him, son, 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 the rich man's problem is that he lost his true identity. I think this is why the Bible doesn't give him a name. I think this is why the Bible doesn't tell us anything beyond, you know, that he was rich and he ignored Lazarus. Because I think when it was all said and done, he had no identity apart from his wealth. That was the thing that gave him value and meaning. And he forgot that he was a child of God. He calls Abraham father, 
in this verse or in this passage a couple of times, but there's something really interesting that happens. The word that's used here for son in Greek is a very familiar term. It is very intimate. It's like something that a dad says to his little son, my boy, my boy. And yet, when the rich man addresses the God figure in this story as father, he uses a very formal, a very rigid sort of word to call him father. It's missing the relationship piece. And so this guy has taken the good gifts from his father. He's made them into ultimate things that he pursues with his life. In the process, he runs over the people in his life who need his help, who need the resources that God has given. And ultimately, it turns his heart so far away from God that his eternity is spent away from his heavenly father. Do you see how this happens in our lives every single day? This is the story of every single person in Calgary. But it's a story that does not have to be. This morning, if you will remember your identity, if you will come to believe that you are a daughter of God, you are not defined by your waist size, You are not defined by what your sister-in-law thinks of you. Who cares? You are not defined by the job title you have. You are not defined by the number of kids that you bear. You are defined by nothing other than the fact that you are his beloved daughter. Hey, fellas, if you would come to believe that your primary identity is as the son of God, It doesn't matter whether you earn as much as that guy. It doesn't matter whether you're using the degree that you spend so much time on. It doesn't matter whether you slept with as many women. It doesn't matter if you are held in high regard. None of that stuff ultimately matters. If you would come to believe that your primary identity, the one thing, so like on this guy's, the rich man's tombstone, they, what did they put on there? They were like, here, here lies Bill, dude was rich. That was it. Okay, if on your tombstone, they put, here lies Dan, son of God, beloved. Man, that's an identity you can build your life around. That's an identity that will cause you to love and serve the people around you. That is an identity that will bring you to God rather than pushing him away. Listen, the answer to our idolatry is found in our identity. If you will assume, take, believe, live out that identity, you don't have to worry about the afterlife. You will have heaven here on earth and you can be assured that you will spend eternity in paradise with God because you are loving his presence now. You honor him as the number one, the ultimate, the father in your life rather than anything else. But listen, for as long as you pursue anything else in your life, you're going to end up dissatisfied. You're going to end up broken. And what Jesus says in Luke 16 is that you will ultimately end up separated from God. 